Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. We've been looking at Isaiah since January 1st. We've been looking now through January, February, March, April. Now we're finishing up toward the end of May. We're still not out of Isaiah. Don't care if we ever get out of Isaiah. We've had so much fun here. A small faith, a great God, small faith. We have this little tiny mustard seed of faith, and God has said, do you not understand how great I am? Tonight, uh, today, we're, this morning, we're looking at the highest of mountains, the highest of mountains. A little geography quiz here. What's the highest mountain? What's the highest mountain in the world? Somebody yell it out. Wrong. Mount Everest, you said. I can't believe you thought that. 29,035 feet above sea level. But is that the highest mountain? Mount what? The Hawaiian, uh, Mauna Kea, Mauna Lea, depending on who you look at in Hawaii, it's 13,796 feet. You said, well, wait a second. But it's 32,808 feet above its base, which is deep in the Pacific Ocean. Trick question. I went to geography.org or geography.com, and it gave me that one. The highest mountain, well, okay, altitude-wise, above the sea level, yes, it is Mount Everest. Uh, but the one in Hawaii is actually a taller mountain if you mount, if you, if from its base in the ocean. Mountains are used for what? Recreation. Mountains are used for any number of things. Relaxation, challenge. People are drawn to them, right? Has anyone ever died trying to go up Mount Everest? Did you know that there are 121 corpses on Mount Everest today that they've never gotten off the mountain? There's still 121 dead bodies there, corpses of people who tried to get up the mountain and who did not make it. Uh, mountains... When I see mountains, I I don't know how you feel about it. When I see Mount Shasta and the snow that we keep getting, here it is May 22nd, and it snowed last week again in Mount Shasta. Do you hear that Mammoth is going to stay open, they think, through July 4th for skiing? There's so much snow in Mammoth right now, they think that they can ski all the way through July 4th. There's, but there's a majesty. When I see that snow, I see the the rugged, the the strength, the stability, and, and, and we're drawn. And one day, one mountain will draw all people. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, look at what it says. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief, literally highest among the mountains. It's going to be the chief, the highest among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Whether you ever thought you wanted to, to, to climb Mount Everest or not, you're going to get to climb the chief mountain, the one that's more important, the, the one that is the pinnacle of the world, and it's called Mount Zion. God draws us to his mountain. Why? Why would we be drawn to the mountain? Because that's where God is. God says, I want you to come to me in my dwelling place. But not just because it's high, not just because it's lofty, not just because it's a place where you can have recreation and skiing and all these other things. I want you to come because I want you to get a fresh perspective. One of the best perspectives that I've ever had of this valley is when I went up skiing on Mount Shasta, and then when I went up uh, and, and to Lassen and, and got up a portion and you could overlook the valley, it gives you a totally different perspective of, of all of Reading in this area. And the Lord says, I want you to get a new perspective of what I'm going to offer you. And I really think that that's what Isaiah 61 and 63 are talking about. We're going to go back there and we're going to see what it means. Uh, Two questions I just want to answer today. The first one is this, why should we climb the mountain? Why should we climb the mountain? I've never had this dream of putting on those spikes on my feet and climbing up the side of a mountain. Does that sound fun to you? 
For some reason that doesn't, I've put on scuba gear and gone under the water, I've done other things, but climbing up the side of a sheer cliff does not sound fun to me. That just does not sound fun. But the Lord says, I want you to climb this mountain. I want you to to come to me. Why? Three things. Uh, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. Look at this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. This is a prophecy, folks. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Isaiah is writing about someone who would quote this later. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to those who are impoverished, to those who have nothing, to the poor. It's, it's more than a financial pov- uh, uh, poverty. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide th- for those who grieve in, and what's the word there? Zion. Usually it's said to be Mount Zion, but here it's just Zion. This is the mountain. Provide for those who grieve in Mount Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of of his splendor. Why should we go to the mountain? Why should we climb that mountain? Number one, Christ promises comfort to the brokenhearted. There are people all over this world that are brokenhearted. And it has been since Isaiah was making this prophecy. He was making this prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came. He made this prophecy even before Jerusalem had fallen. And he knew that they would be brokenhearted over what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Folks, I'm not going to get into a political thing, but I need to say one thing for us right now today, and I, and I cannot stop from saying this. Our president made a huge mistake this week when he said that Israel should go back to pre-67 borders. Israel needs to go to biblical borders, and that's where Israel needs to be. Israel is God's chosen people. They will always be God's chosen people until the Lord returns. And any time we fight against Israel, we're fighting against God, and we're not that stupid, are we? I hope. What we need to think is, we need to think again, what would the Bible have us to do, not what would, what's politically expedient for us. And the Lord says, do you not understand, there is going to be this prophecy, there's going to be one who's coming that, as the anointed one, and he has words for us. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, the fulfillment of this prophecy came. You can look at there if you want to. You can write it down. You can look later. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus goes to, to Nazareth where he was raised. That's not where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem. But they came to Nazareth after two years in Egypt after he was uh, waiting for Herod to, to get over the killing of the babies in Bethlehem. His parents brought him back, and, and he, was, he was raised there. And he came to Nazareth, his boyhood home, And he came to the synagogue, and he sat down. They handed him the scroll of Isaiah. He flipped, and he rolled open in the scroll until he got to this. And he read all the way through to where it said, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says that he sat down, and he says, today, in your presence, this has been fulfilled. This was huge. This prophecy of Isaiah was one that the people had been waiting for. It's talking about the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the one who's coming. It's, it's fulfillment of so many things that, that the Jewish people were looking for. And you would have imagined that day, there, there was a hush that came across that crowd in that synagogue. They were dumbfounded at what Jesus just said. Why? 
First of all, they didn't think he was the Messiah. The second thing is he talked about freeing them from captivity, and they certainly didn't feel free. They were this puppet nation under Rome. And they certainly didn't feel like they were brokenhearted, had been bound up, had been, had been helped, had been comforted. They wanted a king. They wanted a general like David. They wanted someone who could overthrow the enemy. They could bring independence, transform them politically, economically, and make them into a great nation, make them a world player again. And what did Jesus say? Today is the the year of your opportunity. Right now is the time. This is the year of God's favor. And Jesus offered a completely different agenda. Can we learn from this? We still want to be great as America because we want to be a world player. If we want to be great as America, what we need to be is great in the eyes of God. We need to be a people humbled and on our faces. I'm sorry that that somebody stood up and said that Jesus was going to come back on May 21st at 6 p.m. I'm sorry that they misread the scripture, but I'm even sorrier that it takes something like that for people around America to talk at, at all about Christianity. They ought to be buzzing every day because look at the Christians, look at what they're doing. They're wise, they're loving, they're caring, they're 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 binding up the brokenhearted. Jesus had this different agenda. In Matthew chapter 11, he's speaking to them. Look what he says, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Psalm 147, 3 says that he, the Messiah, will heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. And the word that's used in the Hebrew in Psalm 147 is not, is not just a little Band-Aid. It's not just a, a, a little bandage. The word that's used up for binding the wounded, that, that whole phrase refers to someone who's been in a battle. It's triage for those who have been in a disaster. It's, it's triage for those who were down in the southeast when the tornadoes came through. And, and they talked about these football players and their girlfriends and, and their, fr- their family and their friends. And three or four of them will be in a house and one is saved and three of them, their bodies are found scattered hundreds of yards away. And there's a triage where they come and bring them and they, they're saying, can you save this loved one? Can you, can you save this life of this person that I care so much for? And the Lord says, we are in the saving business. We have the ability to come alongside those people who are bleeding and broken in life, physically, relationally, spiritually. We are the ER. We are the emergency room. This church is not a place where you come and you say, wow, I look pretty good today. Let's see who looks really bad. This church is a place, it should be a place, where people who come in who are broken, who are hurting, who are bleeding, and you come and you say, come here. We want to love you. We want to bind you. We want to help you. Not bind you in the sense of of restrict you. We want to take care of that wound that you have. And we'll turn it to the Lord. Christ promises comfort. You'd come to the mountain to find that, that help for the brokenhearted. Number two, Christ purchased freedom for those who are bound. In verse one, it talks about captives. Again, a very expressive word in Hebrew. It's, it's the word that's used for prisoner of war. He says there's prisoners of war out there today. Anybody here ever been a POW? Ever been a POW? Okay, we, we don't have, actually all of us should have raised our hand. We've been prisoners of war, physically, spiritually, economically. Larry Burkett was a man who, who wrote a lot. He, he's gone home to be with the Lord now. I believe he had cancer and died of cancer. But Larry Burkett wrote this book called The Coming Economic Earthquake. 
I got the book in 1992. He wrote it in 1991. I, I got the book and I read it and I thought, wow, he has some really scary things to say. And there were reviews, and I was reading some of the reviews of Larry Burkett's book. They were written in 93 and 94, and they called him uh, way over the top. They called him uninformed. They called him uh, not very biblical in his approach. Larry Burkett at one point says in 1991, the difficulty with the national debt that doubles every 10 years is that the interest will compound to the point that we will no longer be able to pay the interest out of current revenues. In 1991, Larry Burkett said, and I quote, by the year 2000, no later than 2010, America will have racked up $13.5 trillion in debt in 1991. And one of the reviews said that's the stupidest thing that anybody's ever written in a book. How stupid is Larry Burkett today? What are we at, 14.5, 14.3? pretty much on the mark. By the way, he said you can tell there are three warnings that America's in bondage. He called it in bondage, that we were captive, we're prisoners of war economically. This is what he said, three warnings. Number one, there will be a massive bank crisis that the government will have to bail out the banks for them to continue to exist. We haven't seen anything like that. He says that in 1991, he says, up to 30% of the businesses will be depending on their business that will be taking place outside of U.S. borders. We haven't seen anything like businesses going to foreign countries using cheaper labor. We haven't seen anything like that. And the third one, he said, is that the president from the president and the top of the Senate and others will say, there is no crisis, there is no problem, but we as the government can solve it. Let us buy our way into prosperity. Those are the three things he said would be a sign that we're in economic bondage. Wow. I think there may be plenty of captives. We're all prisoners of war. And there's other captives. There's captives of people today who are captive to drugs. There are people who are captive to pornography. There are people who are captives to any number of things. And you say, well, pastor, are you putting this kind of stuff in the same boat? Uh, yes, I am. Anything is controlling you, you're captive to it. And the Lord says, I can break that captivity. Romans 7, 18 says, Paul says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. That sounds like a captive. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 gives us the answer to this. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I'm, I'm not an economic genius. I know nothing about what to do about the economics of the nation except one thing. Turn back to the Lord. Be the people God would have us to be, to go by biblical principles, to live by biblical principles as individuals, as a church, as a city, as a nation, and God will always bless that. Christ purchased freedom on the cross for those who are bound. And the third one is Christ provides, the, the anointed one provides forgiveness for the guilty. There's a play on words here. It, the, we have a song uh, we trade this ashes in for beauty. And the word ashes in, in Hebrew is E-P-E-R, eper, eper. The word beauty is P-E-E-R. We call it peer, but it's peer, peer. So you have eper, peer. It's a play on word. From the lowliest, from the lowest state that you can possibly have, where you're humbled, where you're in ashes, and you've thrown ashes on your face on top of your head because you're in mourning. The one that you love the most has died. The thing that you thought was the most 
amazing thing in your life, you, it, it's just gone to ashes, and that's why I use the symbolism of it's all burned up, and you throw the ashes, and you say, all I have left is ashes of my life. You go from there to being the queen. Well, there's been so much in the media about the true Cinderella story, or what they call the, the Cinderella story of Prince William and Kate Middleton. This poor girl that came from nothing, by the way, that's not actually true. She, she had a pretty uh, substantial uh, heritage. She's, she's not a poor girl. She was not Cinderella living in the ashes. And, and the poor couple, they, they just got back from their honeymoon. I noticed it cost them 750000 They thought it was going to be seven hundred twenty, but they overspent a little bit. Uh, three quarters of a million dollars for a honeymoon. That's about what Kathy and I, oh no, that was $75 for our honeymoon. It was almost the same. Yeah, almost the same. Uh, on the way back to Kansas City, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say we had so little money, we stayed in a hotel, I think it was called the Pink Flamingo. I really hate, in Mitchell, South Dakota, if you have a chance to stay in that one, don't, okay? If you do, keep your shoes on, okay? I'm just, just going to go there. About the same place. About the same place. And, and you say, these, 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 this poor girl was brought into a Cinderella story. Well, I got news for you. Even more than Kate Middleton, we who had nothing... We came to the king of kings, and we had nothing. And he said, let me buy you back. Let me pay the price on Calvary. Let me turn your, your mourning, your ashes, into a beauty, and you'll be the bride of Christ. That's the picture that we have from the Old Testament to the New. And did you notice that Jesus stops before he says, he says in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. When we say the word vengeance... It has a connotation. In fact, it has a denotation from Webster's Dictionary. Vengeance is inflicted retaliation for an offense. It's when you retaliate, when you get revenge, revenge and vengeance, same root word. It's to get back at someone. It's, to, it's bitter revenge. It's selfish re reprisal. But in the biblical sense, vengeance does not have that same meaning. It does not have that denotation or connotation. It's not the exact meaning or any layers of meaning that go with it. And what the Bible says is that God is going to establish what is right and good. Vengeance in God's eyes is what's rightfully owed. It's what should happen. It's the agreement of those who are just and right and perfect that this required fair payment for what is owed. And Jesus, on that day in Nazareth, said, Today is the day of the Lord's favor. Today is the accepted time. And they didn't get it. And he didn't go on about the day of vengeance because he was going to go on the day of vengeance. It's called the day of the crucifixion. Because on that day, Jesus bought for us all the forgiveness for anything wrong that we've ever done. And he stretched out his arms on the cross, and they nailed the nails in his hands and in his feet. The forgiveness is available now because the day of vengeance was not when Jesus spoke at the, on that day in the synagogue. It was coming later on the day of his crucifixion. But I love the fact that Paul realized that. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, look at what he says. I tell you, now is a time of God's favor. Now is a day of salvation. Jesus offered it earlier, and then Paul looks back to the cross, and he says, don't you understand, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 6, he's telling the Corinthian church what has been paid on their, on their behalf, and he says, now is the time. Don't wait. Now is the day to come into this relationship with him. 
Why would you come to the mountain? Have you ever been brokenhearted? Come for comfort. Have you ever been bound up by anything? Come to be released. Have you ever needed forgiveness? Have you ever done anything that you realized was wrong? You can come to the mountain, Mount Zion. And I would say the way to Mount Zion is Mount Calvary. You come to Golgotha. The way of the cross leads to the way of Zion. And here's the second part of this. Not only what, uh, why should we climb, but what should we learn on the mountain? Three things here as well. Isaiah 63. Turn over to Isaiah 63. I wish we had time to read all of Isaiah 61, 62, 63. That's your assignment this afternoon. That's your assignment. Read all three chapters. But look at what it says. Isaiah chapter 63 starts out very harsh, very tough. It says, who is this coming from Edom? Edom was a nation to, to the south. It, it epitomized everything that, that God hated. It, it was, they were against Israel consistently. Their, their capital was Basra. And so here you see, who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And it's a conversation. Why are your garments white? Like those of one treading the wine, wine press. The answer, I've trodden the wine press alone. From the, nations, no one was with, from the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance, remember vengeance we just talked about, doing what was right, paying for what was wrong. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, in my wrath. I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Wow, that's gory. That's gruesome. Most middle, uh, uh, middle school boys would love that passage. That would be a good thing for middle school boys. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, literally, in the Hebrew that could be translated, all the days from now on forever or for eternity. What should we learn when we come to the mountain? We find out why we should be drawn to it, but what should we learn? Three things. Number one, if the Lord's upset with you, you probably deserve it. If the Lord is upset, upset with you, admit that you have done something wrong. That's one of the biggest problems that we have today. It's very intense. I want you to hold your place in Isaiah 63, and I want you to go over to Revelation. Revelation uh, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. There's a parallel that we can't miss. John is, is standing in the throne room of God. The revelation to John is an amazing thing. He's standing in the, in the throne, throne room of God, and he says that there's one sitting on the throne, and there's a scroll that needs to be opened, and no one's there to open it up. Look at verse 4. John's writing and, and speaking, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. This is a scroll that has judgment on the earth. But look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. 
See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Does anyone know? That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. The lion of the tribe of Judah has... Uh, the lion, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Folks, the lion is the lamb. The lion of Judah is also the lamb. And the lamb is the one who is upset. The lamb is the one striding, and he's going to come back as the lion, but the lion and the lamb are the same one. Jesus Christ came as the lamb of God. Jesus Christ is coming back as the lion of Judah. And the lamb is upset. And that's, if, if you can go back and look at Isaiah 63, all from the perspective of the lamb coming. And there's blood everywhere. It's very intense. There's blood splattered clothes. We, we can't even think that way. Uh, several years ago when we were still down in Holtville, I was out one day, and I've told you the story before. I was edging uh, with an edger, and I had my glasses on. These are safety glasses. I had my safety glasses on because I know it's dangerous sometimes, and as I was going along the sidewalk, no warning, no anything, the whole end of the, the, uh, the uh, edger, the plastic and everything, just disintegrated. It went into a thousand pieces. Most of the pieces to harm, you know, just went harmlessly away. A couple embedded my leg, which didn't feel really good, but the one that bothered me the most, it hit on the ground, it bounced off, ricocheted, and it went up through my cheek, through my eyelid, and up so that I could see it in my eye. That's not a good feeling, by the way, just in case you want to know. It hurt quite a bit. They say sometimes you go into shock and you don't feel it. Not always. Sometimes it just hurts. And I knew that there was a problem because I thought, wow, there's red everywhere. What's going on? I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'm just seeing red. And I closed the, the one eye that was bad and I looked down. No, there was red everywhere. I was bleeding. You know, facial wounds, they bleed a lot. It, w- it wasn't really that bad. And Kathy was on the phone. So I did what most godly men will do. I hid in the bathroom, stripped my shirt off, did as much as I could, got the tweezers, pulled the plastic back out through my eye and through the eyelid and through the cheek and pulled it all out. And I, you know, I, I did everything that guys could do, which means you just washed it with some soap and water. And I went out to my wife and I said, can you do me a favor? Can you see if there's any more plastic in my eye? <clears throat> I love my wife. And first, the first thing she said is, where's your shirt? And the second thing she said is, wow, that looks really bad. Should you go to the doctor? And I said, nah. So I rubbed a little dirt on it, went back out and finished the lawn. No, I didn't rub dirt on it, but I I did put some stuff on it and went back out and finished. Here's the point. I had to throw the shirt away. My wife never saw the shirt because if she saw it, she would have fainted dead away. It looked like I had massacred a pig out there. There was blood everywhere. The whole front of the shirt was just completely splattered. And when I read this passage, that's always what I think. When I looked in the mirror, I was shocked at how much blood was just splattered all over me. If somebody had walked in, they would have thought that I was in CSI and I was doing one of those crime scene things and I was the guilty murderer. And the lamb comes walking in and there's blood everywhere. And the people are are aghast. They're astounded at this. And they say, why so much blood? If you're gentle as a lamb, is the lamb gentle? Aren't lambs gentle? They are. Matthew 11, 29, Jesus is speaking again. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. 
and you'll find rest. Right after he said, come and I'll, and I'll give you comfort, there he says, I'm meek and I'm gentle. I'm, I'm gentle and I'm humble. You'll find rest for your souls. It's not that the lamb likes to do this, but the lamb saw that there was a problem. Folks, listen. God does not force his love on anyone. I had someone this week say to me, well, why would you think that God would force all those people to go to hell? Can I explain what the Bible says about that? God never forces anyone to go to hell. What he does is he says, it's your choice, and if you choose to go, I won't stop you. That's really what he has done. Revelation 19.11 says that his robes are dipped in blood. And it's a bloody thing because the lamb is upset. We don't understand what our sin has done in alienating us and in separating us away from God. And God sees us and he says, you're bloody, you need to be cleaned up, and I will put my blood in your place. And the blood will cleanse you. Number two, when you suffer injustice from others, turn it back over to the lamb. Give it back to the lamb. Don't try to handle it yourself. When you suffer injustice, had Israel done this? Isaiah was saying, Jerusalem's going to be overwhelmed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And he knew that. And Isaiah said, when you suffer injustice from others, turn it back over to the Lord. You see, what happens with Israel is what's happened to us. Do you ever get to the point where you pray and you pray and you pray and you're afraid that maybe God doesn't hear you anymore? Or even worse, that God doesn't care? You get to a point where you think, well, maybe God is no longer interested. Maybe God has abandoned me. God will never, ever abandon you. God's never abandoned this earth. God will never abandon this earth because he would never abandon the place where his son's blood was shed. God would never abandon this earth because he has said that these people are his people and they will be his people, Israel. And he's also said the same thing to believers. He says that we have been grafted in as if we were part of Israel ourselves. And God says, if I go, I will come again and take you home. That's why so many people have a hope that God is coming again. Christ is coming again. There will be a a, a messianic reign. There will be a kingdom. And I believe it's a literal kingdom from what I read in the Bible. There will be a time when the King of kings and the Lord of lords reigns on this earth. And we look forward to that, and that's our hope. God has not abandoned us. We, uh, Kathy and I worked at Cal Farley's Boys Ranch for six and a half years, and one of the things that we had to deal with with the boys, one of the worst things that we ever had to deal with was their sense of abandonment because they were sent to the ranch, and sometimes they didn't have parents, but many times they did have one parent that was still living, and they'd gotten themselves in trouble, and so the parent would assign them. They had to assign guardianship to the ranch. They literally had to sign their child away. And time after time, I would sit down with one of those boys, and I would sit with them in the, in the office, and I would say, what's going on? Why is your mind like it is? What's happening in your, in your life? And you know what they would say? Nobody loves me. And I'd say, your dorm parents love you. I love you. You're part of the choir. You're part of the chapel. You're part of the ranch. You've got, look at what you're doing. You're, you're earning this, this uh, tremendous opportunity to get this uh, a scholarship and to graduate and to do all these other things. They could leave with thousands of dollars because they had project animals. I mean, they could just walk away from the ranch with their life set up and they would say, nobody loves me. And what they meant is, my mom or my dad abandoned me. And the message that I had to give them over and over and over again is, do you understand, even if your parents didn't really care about you, and I don't believe that's true. I believe they cared. They just didn't know how to handle what was happening. But even if that were true, there's one person that will never, ever abandon you, 
and that's God. God sent his son, loved us so much that he'd never abandoned us. Hebrews 13.5 said, Hebrews 13.5 says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It says when we're distressed, God is distressed. God cares. We can get churned up inside. We can let these things begin to build, and we can have what Hebrews 12.15 says is a bitter root that grows up. What's a bitter root? It's, it's missing the grace of God, it says. It's, it's, allowing that, it's allowing that unresolved anger. Anybody ever do anything wrong to you? Raise your hand if anybody's ever done anything wrong. Don't look at your spouse when you raise your hand. Just raise your hand. It's okay. We've all had somebody do something wrong. Have you ever kind of held on to that thinking? Well, you just wait. One day I'll get you back. You just wait. One day I'll get you. And the Lord says that allows that bitter root to grow up in you. Romans 12, 19, do not take revenge. You see, that's our word, revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. The same word that we keep coming back to, vengeance is mine. I will make it right, says the Lord. All the people who thought that they have gotten by with something on this earth will one day stand before the Lord and the Lord will say, do you not understand? I'm still going to write the scales. When you suffer injustice from others, give it to the Lord. And last, if you're in your ultimate distress, allow the Lord to save you. In your ultimate distress, allow the Lord to save you. The Lord is kind to us. Many deeds for which he's to be praised. There's one deed that towers above the rest. John the Baptist one day sees Jesus coming, and you remember what he says? John chapter 1, verse 29, behold, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say the Lion of Judah, he could have, but he says, what, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's your sin, that's my sin. In just a few minutes, we're going to have baptism, and these people are saying that at some point, they came to the Lord and said, Lord, take away my sin, and the Lord did it. Jesus was the one who did it on a cross. Isaiah 63, 9 says, he will lift us up and carry us. What's God's goal for you? Let me ask you a question here. What's God's goal for you? Well, you know, I came to church today, Pastor. Well, that's good. That's not God's goal for you. <gasps> it's not? No. You should be faithful to attend the, the church. It says to find a place. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't attend church, but that's not God's primary goal. It says he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. In your ultimate distress, your ultimate distress is the fact that you're alienated, you're far from God, and God says, I want to draw you home again. I want to bring you back. I want, to, to, want you to love me as I love you. I want to have this relationship. God's goal is a relationship for us to be followers of Christ. Jesus said to the disciples, what? Attend church? Be a member? No. He said, follow me. What does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, Kathy and I went to Sacramento for a couple of days, and in Sacramento, we saw all the team logos. You know, some of them are Giants fans, and some of them are other fans, and, and there was a big deal because they were trying to get the Kings to stay in Sacramento, and we came out of one store, and they were selling things you could put in your front yard, and things you could put on the back of your car, and shirts you could wear, and you know, let your voice be heard. We need the Kings. The Kings need to stay here, and somebody had spent thousands and thousands of dollars on all these banners, and these yard signs, and these 
these bumper stickers and these t-shirts. And, and I thought, wow, they want their voice to be heard. They want people to know that they want the kings to stay in Sacramento. And it kind of broke my heart. Somebody would go to all that effort and all that, uh, and again, it's nothing against the kings. Do you understand it was the Kansas City Kings before they came to Sacramento? They have a history of traveling a little bit. They may keep traveling, but there's the king of kings who needs to come and reside in your heart. And it breaks my heart that we as Christians don't sound the alarm and don't get out as much and say, we need the king of kings in our hearts, in our life. We want to love him and serve him. Salvation's not just about getting to heaven. It's a radical change in your life starting now. It's a greenhouse versus a garden. Isaiah 61.3 says you're going to be oaks of righteousness, stability, strength, practicality, beauty. Each person in a relationship growing in your relationship. Each person in that relationship not only growing but serving the Lord. Discipleship means that you come to one, at one point to this relationship where you ask the Lord to save you. But discipleship also means that once you have made that decision, you begin to grow as a Christian, to mature, to become an oak, and to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want you to look at one other place, and we'll close and we'll go to the baptism. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 24. I want to close with this. Usually I use this illustration from somewhere, someone that I know. There's no better illustration than this. Hebrews 12, 18 says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. That, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. What, what mountain is that talking about in verses 18 through 21? What mountain is that? Where no animal could touch it and the voice and the darkness and the gloom and, the, and all of that. What mountain is that? That's Mount Sinai where the law was given. And the writer of Hebrews says, you're not coming to that kind of a mountain. Look at what he says in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I think we have no clue what we've been offered. God says that you can come to this mountain, this Mount Zion, And who's there? The angels and the Christians and the Father, the judge, Christ, the mediator. And the blood is still sprinkled on your behalf and on mine. Because he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come into this great relationship. They came to Jesus and they said, what's the greatest of all the commands? He didn't say feed the hungry. He didn't say, do this, do that. What did he say? Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, to love others as yourself. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to close in prayer. If you have a spiritual need, 
as, as I'm praying or while we're singing, you can come to the front. You can sit on one of these chairs in the front. And any of the deacons or their wives will come, and they will come and just sit by you. They're not going to hassle you. They're not going to harass you. All they want to do is let you know that they want to pray with you and answer any questions you might have. If you have a spiritual need, you can do that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be ready, and we'll have baptism. But you can still come. If you've never received that gift, if the blood has never been applied to your sin, you can do it today. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the word that you have given us, a word that's far better than anything we ever imagined. We thank you, Father, for the truth. We thank you for your word, for what Isaiah saw in the prophecy of Jesus Christ, the anointed one, and for what Jesus did when he came spoiling and staining his garments with his own blood as he went to the cross on our behalf. Thank you, Father. Thank you for all that you've done. May we come in faith. May we grow and be discipled. And may we live and worship and serve the risen God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.